And now I want to read the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much, Charity. We're really grateful for uh, our relationship with Christian Fellowship and that long partnership and in sister church relationship we've had for a long time, and I've gotten to be a part of some of the early meetings for Freedom Summer with Charity and Faye and Kendis and the other uh, phenomenal leaders there at CFBC. And so I'd encourage you, um, especially if you're thinking about what's coming up for the summer, uh, to go into the back, take a look at what's there, and um, be able to sign up and to participate in that program. Well, my name's Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. It's really a joy to have you here this morning. Especially, I want to extend a, a welcome to you if this is your first time. Christ community. I know visiting a new church, or maybe if you've been away from church for a long time, that's not always an easy thing to do to walk into an unfamiliar place. And so hopefully this morning you felt warmly welcomed by those here and felt Christ's love and their welcome to you. And we're so glad that you're here, regardless of where you're at in your faith journey. We hope that you find this to be a place of, um, of welcome and joy for you this morning. Before we look more closely at the passage of Scripture that Charity read for us, I'd love to begin with prayer and asking for God uh, to speak afresh to us through His Word. Um, He has spoken, and His Spirit is at work, and so we want to ask Him to illumine our hearts and minds so that He can do the work that He desires in each one of our lives this morning in and through this passage of Scripture. So let's begin and do that now. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have spoken to us through your word, that you have preserved it for us to study, and that you continue to make it come alive in each one of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now for that uh, work of the Spirit to be happening here as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in this series, as John mentioned, on the vices and virtues, and we've been looking at what it is to be uh, a virtuous person and how to escape vice, Um, what it means to become the sorts of people that Jesus can actually trust his power to, who can do this work that we've been called to do from the very beginning of, of ruling this world in the ways that are according to God and his path for us. And virtuous people are those who use their power, their influence to serve others and, and not themselves. And we've also then been looking at the vices that stand in the way of that, that corrupt us, that, that misorder our loves, that distort the way of life offered to us in and through the gospel. 
And right before this series began, my family and I took a two-week road trip across the United States. We spent time visiting national parks in Utah and Arizona. It was an amazing trip. I think I have a picture here of us uh, in Arches National Park, uh, which was one of our favorite spots as a family along that trip. And as we were driving through the empty expanses of the southwestern United States. One of the things that this trip brought home to me is just how massive the United States is. You start driving across some of these parts of the southwest, just empty mile after mile. And as we were driving through some of these parts of Utah, I I just had a lot of time to think as I was driving, and my mind wandered to this, this series that was coming up, this series on vices and virtues. And the thought struck me. It seems like there are two categories of sins. And here's what I mean. Some sins are like the Grand Tetons. You can see them from a long way off, the Grand Teton Mountains. If you're going to visit them, uh, they, they dominate the horizon from a ways off. You can't miss them. But others are like the Grand Canyon. You don't see them until you almost fall into them. I remember the first time visiting the Grand Canyon. There's nothing in the, if you've done this, there's nothing in the landscape as you approach the Grand Canyon to to telegraph the fact that there's a massive hole in the ground that's coming. You, you drive through the desert and you're coming and you go through the entrance station at the park and you park your car and you walk into the visitor center and then all of a sudden it's there. You see it. This immense canyon. But you can't see it until you're almost right on top of it. And you see, the vices, they tend to be Grand Canyon sins. So, for example, murder is more of a Grand Teton sin. You're not likely just to slip into a bad habit of of murdering people over and over again. But on the other hand, anger is a Grand Canyon sin. It's on top of you before you know it. It can arrive so quickly. Next thing you know, you're tumbling down into it. Another example, adultery. Adultery is a grand teton sin. It looms large. You know it's wrong. There isn't much of a question when you've committed it. But, but lust, it's more of a grand canyon sin. It can sneak up on you. You may not even be fully aware that you're adopting patterns and habits of interacting and thinking in lustful ways. And this is especially true of the greed of vice. It's a classic grand canyon sin. Because no one ever thinks that they're greedy, right? It's so easy to spot in others and so hard to see in us and ourselves. It's so easy to look at others and and see them racing toward the edge of the Grand Canyon, money flying out of the convertible, heading off the edge. But none of us think that we're on that road. I'm not greedy. I I mean, I I just like nice things. I'm not greedy I, I work hard for my money. I'm not greedy. I, I want to give. I just can't right now. I'm not greedy. I only want just a little bit more. But the more you want, the less you have. The more you want, the less you have. And we're going to see this morning as we look together at 1 Timothy chapter 6 that all of us are closer to the edge of that canyon of greed than we think. And the very first reason is that, that greed promises happiness, but it can never satisfy. 
You see, greed, it holds itself out as a pathway to the, the happiness and the contentment that we long for. But in the greed, in the end, greed only leads us to destroy ourselves, our relationships, and in one of Paul's most sober warnings here, even our faith, our relationship with Christ. So listen to how the Apostle Paul, Paul was an early church leader, he was a witness to the resurrection, and he writes a letter to a young apprentice, a young pastor, Timothy. And here at the end of this letter that Paul's writing to his apprentice, Timothy, he says these words. He writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a grand canyon, you might say, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then Paul goes on, he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, And you know, that's frequently a misquoted verse, that that money is the root of all evil. No, Paul says it's the love of money that's the problem. Greed, the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evils. And he says it's through this craving, this, this disordered love of money. That's what greed is, a disordered love of money. This craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, greed, it, it promises happiness, it promises contentment, but it can never satisfy. And I've seen this pattern worked out over and over again in my own life. Uh, even as a 10, 12-year-old kid, uh, I was more obsessed with Star Wars even than, than I am now. And I remember hunting down a particular action figure that I had longed for as a child. I can't remember which one, but there's a particular action figure, and I'd gone to Target week after week, and I knew the days that the, the shipments of action figures came in. And, and finally, I found this one that I longed for for such a long time, and I got it home and, and took it out of the box, and it just it felt hollow. I remember thinking, well, maybe I'd, well, I just need to get another one and another one. And I still have, Rachel can tell you, I still have to this day a, a huge Rubbermaid tub full of probably 50 or 60 Star Wars action figures that I bought as a middle school student. And it never satisfied, it never provided that, that sense of contentment and satisfaction. And we see this pattern only continues to play itself out in our lives as we get older You see, greed, it's an inner disposition of the heart. It manifests itself externally, but it it begins with the heart, this place of our desires, our yearnings, this shaping center of our lives, which is why you don't actually have to have money or even a lot of stuff to be greedy. Uh, Greed is an equal opportunity vice. It transcends class and socioeconomic lines. You can be greedy and have very little money. You can be greedy and have lots of money. You can also be incredibly generous and have lots of money, and you can be generous and have very little money. It doesn't, it's not about how much you have, how much stuff, how much money you have, but this disposition of our heart towards it. It's an excessive attachment to money or what money can buy. Rebecca DeYoung, who's been a helpful guide to us throughout this series and thinking about vices and virtues, she writes, The greedy person's attachment to wealth can wear many faces, an overflowing shopping cart or a single purchase, a stock portfolio that's aggressive or conservative, 
a garage full of expensive cars or a closet jammed full of great deals. It can affect the young, the old, and everyone in between. In all of its varied expressions, however, greed is a perverted love. It's a misordered love. And greed can be fueled by all kinds of underlying desires that are seeking to be fulfilled in a misordered way. So, for example, one person may be greedy because they desire comfort. So they amass a lot of of fine items to, to make their lives a little bit more comfortable. But another person may be greedy for security. They want to know that they won't have to worry about money, that they'll be secure in retirement or that they can afford college or whatever it might be, but so they don't spend any money at all, they just, they hoard it. Still others may be seeking after approval or fame or achievement, in which case greed is driven by the desire to prove that you're, you're winning, that you're successful, that you've made it. So security, comfort, approval, control, uh, these aren't bad things but they ruin us when they're sought in the wrong ways, in misordered ways. And you see, greed, it offers to fulfill them all, but it can never satisfy. Greed promises that money will make you feel secure, make you have approval and comfort, control, but it can never satisfy. The greedy person will never be happy. This is what Paul shows us in verses 6 through 9, that true contentment and satisfaction come when we trust God to provide the basic necessities of our lives. But not only does greed leave us unhappy, it also trains us to slowly disregard everyone else. It turns us inward on ourselves. It, It makes us overly focused on our needs, our wants. And indeed, if it's left unchecked, greed leads us to view other people simply as commodities, as means to getting what we really want, rather than human beings to be cherished and treasured for who they are. In in this way, greed isn't unlike lust. You see, the greedier we become, the more we see people around us not as just people, but as contacts or prospects or leads. You know, a party is never just a party. A church is never just church. It's an opportunity to, to network, to make connections, to advance. Uh, there's a song in the Oscar-winning film La La Land. It's called Someone in the Crowd that I think captures this dynamic perfectly. In the story of La La Land, it's about an actress and she's trying to make it and Someone in the crowd captures this. The chorus goes like this. Someone in the crowd could be the one you need to know, the one to finally lift you off the ground. Someone in the crowd could take you where you want to go if you're ready to be found. So do what you need to do till they discover you and make you more than who you're seeing now. But there's a desire that if in any crowd, any party, that there's someone there who can help you advance. You see, greed turns people into commodities. And that's what Paul means when he writes in verse 9 that greed plunges people into ruin and destruction. And over time, left unchecked, greed will cause you to wander from Jesus. This was perhaps the most sobering part of this passage for me as I reflected on it this week. These words just kept ringing in my mind. Listen again to the end of verse 10. It is through this craving 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Because here's the thing, when you don't get what you think you deserve, when you don't get what you want, and greed never fully gets what it wants, it always wants a little bit more, you'll end up angry with God that he hasn't given you what you think you deserve, what you're owed. Or, and this might even be more scary, you actually do get what you've always wanted. It does mostly satisfy you, and you wander away from God because you don't need him anymore. You've only used him as a means to an end. You see, either way, we demonstrate that if we come to God for money, for stuff, for things, that it's money and things that are our God, not Him. Now, I know at this point, probably some of you are thinking something like, I'm really glad that someone else is here to hear this message because I know how greedy they are. But the reality is that I'm greedier than I think and you're greedier than you think. It's why messages like this make us uncomfortable even when we think it isn't for us. See, the more you want, the less you have, and greed cannot deliver on the promises that it makes to satisfy you. And what's more, what we're looking for is already offered to us. Because you see, greed trains us to see money as God, as rescuer, as savior. Greed says that money will provide you with all that you need. Greed promises that money will make you happy, will ensure that you're never alone, that you will never have to want or worry. Greed wants to make money your savior, your king, your rescuer. But if you try to make money, your Savior, it will only make you a slave. And don't you see that someone else has already promised those very things to you? Because those promises that money makes, those are the promises that a king, a rescuer, a Savior makes. And the one true king of the universe has already made those promises to you. You see, money isn't the problem. Greed is the problem, and greed is a liar. But listen to these words in verses 11 through 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then listen to how Paul goes on to describe God, in verses 15 and 16, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. See, again, money isn't the problem. It's the love of money, the making money our king that destroys us. And why would we make money our king When the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, who who no one has ever seen, and yet who has joined himself to humanity in the person of Jesus and come to live, to die, to rescue us, offers all of these things to us. If it's approval you're after, he promises to make you into somebody, to adopt you into his family as a son, as a daughter, to give you the approval that 
you've always wanted and more approval than you'll ever need? Is it security that you seek? How about being protected and held secure by the person who made the universe and who conquered death and says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Is it control that you need? How about surrendering to the one who is sovereign over everything and apart from whom nothing happens? Comfort, the one who promises to wipe away every tear from your eye and usher you into a, a new heavens and a new earth with vast abundance. See, don't you see, it's not just that greed is wrong. It's that greed doesn't even make sense for a follower of Jesus. Don't believe the lie. And you might be thinking, okay, that, that sounds beautiful, Bill. That's a, that's a great vision of, of what Jesus is and, and who he is and what he's done for me. And then you might be thinking, so is the solution to escaping greed simply to, to daily remind myself of those realities about Jesus? Is that how I fight, to, to daily tell myself these truths about who Jesus is and, and what he's done for me? To which my answer is absolutely yes. Do that. Remind yourself regularly of all that Jesus has done for you in and through the gospel. But that alone won't free you from greed especially if it's become deeply entrenched in your lives, and it's probably more deeply entrenched for most of us than we know. You see, we have to give it away before we have nothing left. Now, you see, if you and I were primarily thinking things, if that's what human beings are, is primarily thinking things, then merely cognitively reminding ourselves of the truths about Jesus and what he's done for us would free us from greed. But the thing is, is we aren't first and foremost thinking things. We're first and foremost loving, desiring creatures. And what we love and what we desire is shaped by our habits through imitation and practice. It's how both vices and virtues are formed through imitation and practice. We will never change unless we change at the habit level, the heart level, which is why as soon as this truth, this vision of the beauty of Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, grips our hearts, we must also start doing the hard work of giving things away before we have nothing left. It's only the practice, the act of generosity that will reshape our loves and free us from greed. Because you see, in the very act of giving, whether you have very, very little and you're only giving away a few dollars or you have massive amounts, it's, that's not the point. It's that every time we, we stretch out our hand and we open it up just a little bit, it gets a little bit easier. And once we do that over and over again, opening, 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 we're rewiring our attachments, we're reshaping our loves, our habits, I know a number of you recently have been through Dave Ramsey's uh, Financial Peace University class that, that just finished up here at the Brookside campus, and many of you also know how transformative that class was for me and Rachel uh, not long ago, about a year and a half ago we went through it. And one of the things that surprised us, and maybe it surprised you if you went through the class recently, is that as passionate as Dave Ramsey is about throwing every dime that you have at getting out of debt, 
And he says, go out, get a second job, get a third job, do whatever you can to throw money at this debt and get it taken care of. He says, the very first thing you should do, no matter how much debt you're in, the step one of getting out of debt is to tithe. That is to give 10% of your money to your local church. He's so adamant about that. Why? Because Dave argues that if you can't live on on 90% of your money, you probably aren't living on 100% either. You're probably overextending yourself. And I think he knows that unless we rewire our hearts toward money, we'll just fall back into the trap of debt again because we haven't dealt with the root issue. Paul writes in verses 17 through 19, this reminder, he has, says, as for the rich in this present age, which especially when we begin to think globally is just about everybody sitting here this morning, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love that, that Paul includes that. God has provided us with good things to enjoy. It's not that we can't enjoy money and the things that it can buy, but we can't set our hopes on those things and the uncertainty of that. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So how do we become people who are increasingly generous and ready to share? I love that language that Paul uses, increasingly generous and ready to share. And notice I said increasingly there because I want to just pause here for a moment and say that so many of you sitting here this morning are incredibly generous. And I'm humbled regularly by the stunning generosity of this church family. It's truly amazing. And yet, all of us never are at a place where we escape the danger of tumbling into that Grand Canyon of greed. We never get a place where we're, where we're too far along that we can't slip down into that canyon. And so here are three ideas for ways forward in growing in this discipline of generosity. And first, if we want to be generous... We have to make sure we have margin in our lives to, to be generous. And this, this means we have to watch our lifestyle, that it doesn't subtly creep to a point where we're spending every single dollar that comes in. And it's so easy. Maybe you haven't experienced this if you're, maybe you're in high school or you're or just out of college, your first job. You maybe you haven't experienced this quite yet. But it's so easy as you advance in your, in your career with each new pay raise or job to just allow your life to kind of just expand to the capacity of that, that new paycheck. And once our lifestyle is expanded, it's so hard to go back, isn't it? We lock ourselves into a certain standard or pattern of living. Actually reminds me again of, I had a lot of time to think when I was on this trip, of driving across Utah. And parts of it are so empty and so flat, and the highway is so straight. There's a good chunk of I-70 through the middle of Utah where the speed limit is 80 miles an hour. It's a posted speed limit. And after two or three hours of driving at 80 miles an hour, and then you get off the highway and you're on a side highway driving through one of these towns, and you know, as you start approach, it goes from 65 to 55, down to 45, and then you're driving through that little main street of the town, and it's 35 miles an hour. Well, if 10 minutes ago you were driving 80, 35 feels so slow. I think I said to Rachel, I feel like I could walk faster than we're driving right now. 
But that's what happens with our lifestyle. If you're driving at 80 miles an hour all the time, 35, even 65 seems so slow. It's hard to go back. So as you grow in your career, as you get that next job or the next pay raise in your life, maybe think about how can I not instantly just live up to everything that that new check can buy? How can I keep my lifestyle maybe a bit moderate compared to what I could be? It's easier than having to hit the brakes later on. And the best way to monitor that is through the simple old-fashioned budget to account for every dollar of every paycheck every time and to put generosity giving at the top of the list. Because if you don't, I promise there won't be anything left at the bottom. We've lived that way. It's hard. It's got to go at the top. Second, start small but never stop. This is where it's so important to remember that none of this belongs to us anyway. It's all God's. He's given us everything that we have, even the very talents and skills and ability that allow us to earn money. It's all a gift from Him. So find a place to start giving, but never settle for where it's at. Now, at this point, you may be saying, okay, Bill, but, but how much? How much do I really need to give? And that's our question, isn't it? It's always my question. How much can, is it, am I at a place where I'm giving enough yet? which is a classic question, at least for me, of someone who has a greedy heart, because I just want to know the minimum. How, what's the minimum I can give and then have a clean conscience then to just happily spend all the rest of it on myself? And I love what C.S. Lewis says about these. He says, I, I do not believe that we can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. It's always such a sobering passage for Lewis. And I, I love how he frames that. If those in our same income, because we need Christians in every space, in every income bracket, in every profession. But as you look around at the people in your neighborhood, in your same income bracket, if your lifestyle is identical to theirs, Lewis suggests that perhaps we're not giving away enough. It's only generous if it begins to hamper what we might want to do. Again, Rebecca DeYoung here, she says, searching when she's suggesting what's an antidote, an antidote for greed, she writes this. She says, perhaps the best advice is the oldest, to tithe. Not only do we believe that God expects us to tithe, we also believe it's the best way to be formed by something better than greed. And, and think about that reality. If you institute this practice of giving every month or every week or every paycheck, giving 10% of it away, that's going to form you over time. It, it can't help but shape you. It's going to change you. And it's not about what the church wants for you. God will provide richly for His church. But it's about what God wants for you to become more like Him. 
that generosity into the local church provides for flourishing families and communities. But tithing isn't necessarily the starting point where you're able to begin. And it's certainly not the finish line. Some of you might be saying, but I, I just graduated. I have this first job. I'm overwhelmed by student loans. And I, I just can't, I, I don't even know how I could find 10% of it to give. Okay. Well, start with five or even 3%. But start somewhere. Start now. It's always easier to start now than it is to start later. And then keep increasing it. Because that also means once we hit 10%, it's not like at that point Jesus says, okay, stop giving now. You've given 10%. I don't want any more. 10% isn't the finish line either. Most of us can't afford to give more, and I hate saying that because it probably includes me. But let's keep pushing one another, spurring one another on for our own good, for the health and the joy and the life of our church and our neighborhood. And I know many of you are doing this already. We have such a generous church family. And thank you for being so faithful in this. And third, take hold of life that's really life. Did you catch that language at the end of verse 19 that we're called to take hold of life, which is truly life? It's another way of saying eternal life, everlasting life, abundant life, the life that Jesus secured for us through his death and resurrection that, yes, is future, but begins and breaks into our lives now. And you see Jesus, Paul writes in a, another letter that he wrote to the, second, the Corinthians, the second letter, Paul writes that Jesus, though he was rich, and rich isn't really even adequate language to describe what Jesus is, right? He's the, he's the creator and maker of everyone and everything that exists, that, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, that we might become rich. Because Jesus, the ruler of the entire universe, came and gave his very life for ours, became utterly poor to the point of death, of literally giving up his breath and blood you and I have an unimaginable inheritance that is unmatchable, unshakable, unsurpassable. And we become most like Jesus when we give. And we are made in the image of an incredibly generous God. And we are at our most human when we are giving. You see, in the end, greed always dehumanizes, deforms us. It makes us miserable generosity breathes new life and joy and contentment into our souls that are so often choked with greed and we don't even know it. Come to the one who owns it all and find the freedom of giving away what he's given to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, of all the messages that we've done so far, in this series, this is one that's perhaps been the most convicting to me personally. Would you help each and every one of us to see through the lies of greed and to embrace the practices of generosity that free us from them? Would you empower us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit to do this because we can't do it on our own? It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.